Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jan Orman. This podcast is a recording of a conversation that I had recently with one of my colleagues in a webinar format about the value of making a formulation in mental health care. I'd like, first of all, to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we all presented this webinar and are listening to this podcast and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and provide a particular welcome to anyone in the audience who identifies as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. The concept of a formulation is very familiar to some people who work in mental health, but not so familiar to others. So we hope to increase your level of familiarity in this conversation and enthuse you with the idea of using a formulation in your work. You'll find some downloadable resources in the podcast description that will help you along the way as you listen. to do here with this series in general and today in particular is help you become acquainted with and understand the place of a particular intervention in clinical practice and feel confident about delivering this intervention in your clinical practice to those who need it tomorrow. In this instance, of course, we're talking about um, making a formulation. So whilst it's not strictly speaking an, a, an intervention, no, I'll take that back. It is an intervention, isn't it, Mel? Mm-hmm. Let's have a look at why we think it's an intervention. I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Melissa Black, who is a colleague of mine at Black Dog Institute, the clinical research lead and a clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute, um, uh, particularly now working in the Essential Network Project, which provides psychological services to health practitioners around Australia without them having to go through Medicare. So, Let's talk about what a formulation is. Now, there are going to be people in this room who throw up their hands and say, no, we know what a formulation is. But I want to tell you that within the medical model, not everybody knows what a formulation is. So I found this definition of a formulation on a UK site called Changing Minds, and I thought it didn't do a bad job of describing what a formulation is. What do you think, Mel? Yeah, I I really like this definition. I think it captures some of the main elements. And starting with that joint effort, it really is designed to be something that's collaborative between a clinician and a patient. And it helps develop a language of how to describe someone's difficulties as well as their strengths. And we'll get to that later on. And ideally, it's something that happens throughout the course of of care. You know, it's not a once and done. You can refer back to it and add to it and change things as things develop. Uh, and, it, and it is a way to summarise things, put everything on one page and, and help look at the interactions between different factors. And the most important bit, and, and I think this is important for all of therapy really, is helping a person make sense of their difficulties, understand what's led to them, what might the underlying vulnerabilities be, what's keeping them going, what's helping them, what's not helping them. Um, and one of my favourite moments in therapy is when you develop a formulation together, you look at it and the patient sits there and goes, no wonder I'm feeling this way. And it's just this realisation of this makes sense to me. That It hasn't arisen randomly. You know, there are factors that have um, led to them presenting in your office at that time and, and why they're working with you. 
So what Mel's describing is why we think this is actually an intervention, not just some steps mm-hmm. you go through in order to fulfil the requirements of your inner mental health plan or whatever. So talk to us, to us about how to do it, Mel. I've got these two models that I use and teach. Um, which of those models do you tend to use? Yeah, I, I guess it's a combination of both. Of course, you know, we we don't sit down with a person and go, let's look at the four Ps, you know, as the, f- as the first port of call. Um, it's really important to start with those really general questions that I'm sure all of you use. What, what's brought you here today? What's going on? What's hard? All of those sort of things. Um, and I think model one is, is are the really important high-level questions for clinicians to keep in mind. This is what we're trying to do. Why this person? Why this illness? Why now? What's led to it? How? And, and that gives us a clue about what interventions we might then recommend. And the 4P model gets to some of those more specific factors. And I really like this model. It was where I started my clinical psychology training. It's Jacqueline Persons, who's a very well-established clinical psychologist, who I think originally came up with it. I do use 5Ps. I I include presenting factors in there as well. Um, But looking through those different factors is a really open way to look at any problem that a person's having. And I think that's really useful as a way to go alongside a diagnosis. We don't want to pigeonhole people too early. You know, we we know the different flavors of depression, the different flavors of anxiety, but sometimes it might not be one of those things or it might be a combination of those things. So I really like the four Ps in how um, generic it is and how applicable it is to such a big range of problems. It strikes me as that it's much more holistic approach to a patient. It tells you, well, hopefully, everything that you need to know about a patient, not just about their diagnosis. I should mention that the GPs and probably everybody else who receives mental health treatment plan will remember that on the front of the mental health treatment plan when it's on both sides of a page is a box at the bottom that says diagnosis slash formulation. And it's too big for just a couple of words of a DSM diagnosis. What they're asking for there is a few words that constitute a few sentences that constitute a formulation, a holistic picture of that patient. So that's why having a method for making a formulation is quite a helpful thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Jan. And and one thing that we've we've talked about a little bit before is that it also allows you to assess those biopsychosocial factors. Mm. You know, it it just gives us a sense of and and all of those things can fit into each of the four Ps. Um, but it does give us a way to to look at where those occur in the timeline as well for mm. someone. This is my template for making a formulation. There are templates that have these four columns and then have the four columns divided horizontally into three horizontal lines uh, saying biological, social, psychological. But in general, that just causes confusion because people don't know which box to put things in. They'll know which column to put things in, but the boxes just make it all the more complicated. And I don't think that's necessary, um, Not in certainly not in primary care. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether you'd find it useful in your job, Mel, would you, to have the, them divided uh, up? I, I think it's more just in the back of my mind. I want to make sure I don't miss something, mm-hmm. you know, make, making sure that I've, I've considered someone's genetics, someone's biological vulnerabilities, as well as those broader contextual social factors and their individual factors, those psychological factors. So I think 
not necessarily sharing with the patient, but just as a clinician, I find it helpful just to have in the back of my mind. So Mel, do you use a template like this when you're making a formulation? I do. It's it's certainly in my mind all the time. It's um, ingrained, and it is a really helpful way, as you've said, to share with the with the patient how we might break things down, and particularly that difference between predisposing and precipitating can be really helpful. Of you know what's happened any time in the past, but also what's happened recently to look at triggers can be really useful, and then those perpetuating factors, you know, asking, okay, what are you doing that's helping? What's not helping? And that gives us a sense of what might be maintaining the difficulties, but also some protective factors. And then we can ask more generally about protective factors as well. But it's, it's some really useful language um, to use with patients as well. Your mention of confusing predisposing factors with precipitating factors actually reminds me of a story. Can I tell you tell my story? Yes. My story is about someone I've seen for a long time who has has recurrent unipolar depression. The the the, the um, jury's out on whether she's actually bipolar or not. But I see her from time to time. She manages well. I used to see her a lot more, but she's learned a lot uh, over the course of time. And recently I saw her and she said that things had been crook for a couple of weeks and she wasn't sure whether she needed medication jiggled or, or, you know, what was going on. And the more she thinks about whether things are going down the gurgler again, the more she goes down the gurgler, you know, that that reinforcement cycle of you think you're depressed again, so you get more depressed with the stress of it. Anyway, so she's got some predisposing factors in the form of a biological illness. She's in a, uh, a difficult job uh, she, uh, and she's got a difficult family. So, so there's a number of predisposing factors there. And we talked through all of this and uh, worked work through the symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, and, yes, she was getting close to being clinically depressed again. But... Somewhere in the conversation, towards the end, I hate to, hate to tell you, while I was, I was doing this in my mind, not on paper but in my mind, she said, oh, did I tell you I was renovating? <laughs> so she, she'd moved out of her home and was renovating her home and the, the move out period coincided with the, the slip down of her mood. So we then had a precipitating factor that was separate from the predisposing factors. So I got out my template and said, let's do this again. Let's." <laughs> and she, by the end of it all, she was really feeling much better because she'd identified the precipitating factor, mm. understood that it wasn't her illness that was was in fact, the precipitant, just her illness that was making her vulnerable and left the room much happier than she'd come into the room knowing that in a few weeks' time when she could move back into her house, things would probably get better. Now, if they don't, she'll come back and see me. But, but you know, that was from that, in that consultation, that was a very useful intervention to be able to do. Yes, it, it, it sounds like it and, and certainly very informative. You know, she came in with that question of do I need to tinker with my medication? Did you? Did you change no, your medication? No. <laughs> what's, what's really interesting is that, you know, it hits you in the face. Of course a renovation is a stressful event that makes all of us feel bad. Um, yes. But, but she hadn't thought of it because mm. there are so many things in her life that, that 
have potential to bring her down. She actually hadn't thought about this as a stressor that might be important in her current state. So putting together a formulation in that way can be very helpful indeed. Yeah, and you actually raise a really good point there, Jan, around how you might ask about it or, you know, how you might prompt. You know, we sometimes we can say, do you have any thoughts about what might have led to this? And so people might think of just those you know, direct causes or what they might think is direct causes, but it can be really helpful, which, you know, I'm sure most practitioners do, but just to go, what's going on generally, you know, yeah. just, just to help get at what might be leading to this that they may not have put together. So we've talked about a few of the things uh, that we can get from uh, doing a, a formulation. We can get a very thorough assessment if we're we're following a framework for our conversation, not sitting there asking them questions and filling in the form, ticking boxes, but just at least mentally filling, using a framework for the conversation. We've talked about increasing insight and understanding, and that's two ways, isn't it? That's the patient and us getting a better understanding of what's going on. Enhancing engagement is very interesting because it's, it is amazing how a, a, a richer conversation based on something like the formulation framework can make people feel much better about you and much more willing to talk to you. And I'm sure you've all had that experience of someone engaging with you further because of some extra step you appear to be going with them. A formulation makes sure that you don't miss anything, particularly for GPs if they are putting together a mental health treatment plan. Using the formulation to inform the mental health treatment plan is such a good idea. And the last last but not least, improving communication with other practitioners. If you put together a terrific few-sentence formulation starting from what you've gleaned as you filled in the grid, then you can do a much better job of communicating with other practitioners, be they the GP that referred the patient or the, the, uh, the mental health professional that you as a GP are referring to or the other people in your practice that need to know about this. You might no, with letters from psychiatrists and sometimes psychologists, there's an executive summary at the top. Usually that fits the bill as a formulation. It's a thank you for sending so-and-so, age blah, married, blah, blah, who is experiencing and has experienced, in, you know, just three, four sentences of clarity around this patient and, and all you need to know about them. Now that, does that sum it up adequately, Mel? I think so. I guess just a, a few other um, things that I'd add to that with, with the understanding and engagement, you know, it's that moment with the patient where they go, they get me, you know, there's this shared understanding and they, they get what's going on for me. And sometimes that happens with a diagnosis. Sometimes people go, oh, there's a name for this. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but other times it doesn't. A diagnosis doesn't always fit or people don't identify with that label or the diagnostic criteria. And what I really like about formulations is that they are very transdiagnostic. They transcend those boundaries between different diagnostic categories. And being able to look at overlapping features, I'm sure all of you have met people with more than one DSM diagnosis technically. And so being able to look at factors that might maintain those or shared underlying vulnerabilities can be really, really useful. 
to, to make sense for a person. Why don't we talk about a patient to illustrate all of this? This is my patient, Jenny, who is a 36-year-old lawyer. She's a single mother of two girls, aged six and eight, presenting with a recent onset of panic attacks. She says that her dad's a warrior, and she is too, And but she hasn't had any panic attacks since she was a teenager doing the HSC, living at home with her parents. She came to Sydney to go to university and despite the pressures of university, didn't have any panic attacks subsequent to the HSC. Her parents, as it turns out, have recently decided to retire and come to Sydney to be close to her. And Jenny tells you that her first reaction was a sigh of relief that she um, will have her mother close to her. So what's going on for her? The, what do you think might be happening for Jenny? What do we need? To, what more do we need to know, Mel? Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think some some of those questions around what else has happened now and and what is going on in your life in general, you know, what's her job like? Is is it is it stressful? Is it not stressful? Um, what are the hours like? How does she balance that with single motherhood? How does she find being a single mother? You know, we don't want to assume that someone finds that difficult. We need to get a person's sense of how do they find that. The the example that comes to mind, I was doing an assessment with a, a lovely gentleman who had been homeless for a number of years. And I remember saying, that must have been really hard for you. And he said, no, that was actually one of the best times in my life. I felt really Really free. And so we never want to assume what those predisposing or precipitating factors might be. Um, and then, you know, we, we've got some information about her, her parents, you know, her dad's a warrior. She does report that um, she's had a sigh of relief when her mum's coming, but it sounds like there are some mixed feelings there and she's having panic attacks you know, soon after they're moving to, to Sydney or, or deciding to move to Sydney. And so wanting to explore that a little further as well. Mm-hmm. The conversation reveals that Jenny's not particularly stressed by work. She's got a job that she feels comfortable in and she's been in it for some time. And she's mm-hmm. not stressed by her single motherhood either mm-hmm. because she's got really good support from the girl's dad's parents and the wider family. So so she gets plenty of time to herself and the girls are really well um, engaged with that side of the family. So, so life isn't quite as stressful as we assume that it might be, be for Jenny. Mm. Let's have a look at the formulation grid that we made as a result of these conversations with Jenny. So, so it's clear to both Jenny and her clinician that anxious warrior and the past history of panic attacks needs to be in the predisposing factors, along with the family history of anxiety that we don't know a lot about. But if she identifies dad as a warrior, then I think that's that's important. We haven't asked her about any childhood issues yet. This is a uh, short consultation, you know, we can't get there that quickly. Or, uh, or about drugs and alcohol. That was an oversight on our part, but we can put on the formulation grid to ask her about it next time. It seems like she's identified her parents retiring to Sydney as a precipitant. And one of the reasons that has occurred to her is that she suddenly remembered while we were having a conversation that the panic attacks when she was at high school were about how much her father was worried about the results she was going to get in the HSC. So so 
and this came out in the in the conversation and she actually identified that as a possible precipitant she was looking forward to her mother coming but she wasn't really looking forward to her father and his worrying and the potential that there was for interference actually with her life from her father so so that was a very interesting thing to come out of the conversation so the perpetuating factors may be the stressful job, but she's assured us that that's not likely to be an issue. The, the children are going to be a perpetuating factor because, as anyone knows who's had any children, children are always a perpetuating factor, especially of anxiety. And maybe she has some unresolved relationship issues with those parents. We don't know about a childhood. We've got to find out. We will. But these are things that we need to maybe in our minds, if not on paper, put in our mental health treatment plan. And column four looks very well populated, doesn't it? This is my favourite column in the 4P uh, formulation structure. What do you think, Mel? Is it important? It's, it's definitely important for a couple of reasons. One, um, it, it just gives everyone a bit of a nice feeling that we ask about strengths and protective factors as well. And, you know, like like your client before who said everything's gone to shit, you know, it's nice to be able to look at some of those things that might be helping. Um, but it also gives us some clues about what we can draw on in terms of intervention or protective factors going forward and what might help um you know, reduce the anxiety or reduce the panic attacks. So, you know, can she lean on her parents a bit more? Can she lean on her in-laws or her father a bit more at this time, you know, and having that conversation? So I think it's it's a really important um, thing to keep on our radar. I just had a thought. Can she get involved in the conversation about where her parents are going to live in Sydney so that they're far enough away that their present won't, presence won't impact on her? Now, there's a, there's an interesting way direction for the therapy to go in, isn't it? Once you've got yes. this insight, you can take some, some creative pathways in therapy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess the the other thing I'd I'd pick up on with this is that um, particularly with protective factors, but of any of any of the factors, that it's really great to be able to return to throughout the course of things. And you know, as additional precipitating factors arise, or as perpetuating factors arise, or as she develops skills, or she sets some boundaries with her parents, you know, mm-hmm. we can put strong boundary setting in protective factors, um, and that's really nice as a as a way to have continuity uh, across the course of things. Um, but also if things come up again, then you've got this shorthand to refer back to and go, oh, this happened last time. You know, this is what happened. Is this similar or is this different? You know, it's not, this has got to be a living document because in my experience, it's not uncommon for people to come back many sessions into a relationship with me and say, oh, I was talking to my mother the other day and she was telling me about this that I used to do as a child to calm myself when I when I wasn't was a bit distressed and that can go on to the protective factors too that's a skill they'd forgotten about that they that they are now able to use again and so it's a living document that new information can be added to it all the time yeah the the other thing that I I really like about formulation in general is it can work at a lot of different levels. It can work longitudinally, so across the course of therapy or across the course of someone's life, and it can work on just the presenting problems at that particular moment. But you can also get even more specific. And so in this example, I'd be thinking about the panic attacks and go, okay, for for the last time you had a panic attack, what did that look like? What led to it? What what, what happened just before that? What did you do afterwards? Did you have any thoughts about it? What did you think the panic attack meant? 
And that can help diagnostically as well to work out, is this panic disorder? Do we need to treat that? Or are the panic attacks a symptom of um, everything else that's going on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this document, this process is growing into something much more than just a piece of paper with a summary on it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and you had a really lovely suggestion before, Jan, around, you know, developing this into a wellbeing plan or something that, you know, someone can take when you finished engagement or paused engagement for a period of time as mm. a way that they can continue to make sense of their difficulties, but also a reminder of those protective factors or things that might trigger certain things. Mm. Um, it's a nice, a nice way for a person to remember. Um, they may they may not take the formulation grid with them. Yes. Oh, <laughs> they might, but they may take the the structure the, of the the way you thought about it with them and apply that to their situation in the future, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a, I think in a good relapse prevention plan or in a wellbeing plan or in a therapy blueprint, there's always something like this. Mm. Um, but mm. I, I agree, it won't necessarily be the formulation grid, um, but it's helpful for a person to have these different factors on their radar. This is kind of the foundation and you build up mm. from there. Yes. And it's also, it's also visible when you get letters back from psychologists whether they've been thinking in these terms as well as a GP and probably also visible in mental health treatment plans that you receive in in your work clinically, Mel, if the GP, if the referring GP has been thinking in these terms. So it's um, certainly cheers you up when you see that people in the the treatment team are all on the, the same page. Yes, and and certainly beneficial for the the patient as well. That if all of their health professionals are speaking the same language and and mm-hmm. um, making sense of their difficulties in the same way. I just want to thank Mel so much for her contribution to this discussion. I think it's been a really interesting discussion, and I hope you out in the room have also found it interesting and useful for you. If you want to revisit it, the recording of this particular session will be up on the Black Dog Institute website sometime soon. And also if you want to use it as a teaching tool with um, any of your peers or colleagues, that's a, you're perfectly welcome to do that as well. So welcome, everybody. We hope to, I don't mean welcome, I mean thank you everybody for coming. We hope to see you again at one of our brief webinars Um, and I'm glad that for some of you at least this has has demystified the concept of formulation and made you realise just how useful it could be.